When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Those lyrics were written by a man called Horatio Spafford back in 1873. Horatio wrote those words after probably some of the most traumatic experiences someone could ever go through. Two years previously in 1871, the great Chicago fire ripped through Chicago and Horatio lost his four-year-old son to the flames. Horatio also owned a whole lot of uh, property in Chicago at the time and it all went up in smoke. He was financially ruined. Uh, A couple of years later, he put his wife and his four daughters on a boat on the way to the UK. He was going to go and be part of some evangelistic campaigns, and he sent them on a boat ahead of him. As they were crossing the ocean, the boat hit another boat and sank, and his four daughters drowned. Only his wife survived. Horatio got on another boat, and he sailed over to comfort his grieving wife, and at the very point Uh, where the previous ship had gone down and he'd lost his four baby girls. At that point is where he wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul. And I wonder if Horatio finds comfort or a companion in our Old Testament friend Habakkuk, whose name means to wrestle or to embrace. And from our series so far, we see that Habakkuk is staring down the barrel of some impending suffering. God has told him that the Babylonians are about to invade and just lay waste to the land of Judah. And Habakkuk to this point has wrestled with God about the impending suffering. And what we're going to see today is that Habakkuk actually gets to a place of embrace. He embraces God and he embraces what is about to come. He gets to the point that Horatio Spafford was able to sing about, it is well, it is well with my soul. Habakkuk ends his short little book with these words. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in God my Saviour. How did Habakkuk arrive at this place? Habakkuk chapter 1 starts with him questioning God. God, where are you? Do you even care? What are you going to do about injustice? Questions and complaints. And then he ends with, I will rejoice And God, my Saviour, how the transition, what is that journey like from questions to faith? And how can we in our lives in the face of an uncertain future and in the face of suffering be in that very same spot of sure-footed faith and joy in God? How can we be like Habakkuk and Horatio Spafford? Chapter 3 that we're looking at today is Habakkuk's prayer. It's his response uh, to what God has told him. He just finishes and prays and worship. And there's three things that I think we'll get out of uh, today's message. In the face of suffering, what we can learn from Habakkuk is that we need to look back at God's faithfulness. We need to look up at his goodness. And we need to look forward to his salvation. Chapter 3 isn't long, so I'm going to read uh, the text aloud. If you have your Bibles, turn to Habakkuk 3. And it starts, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from His hand where His power was hidden. 
Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bows. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig leaf does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Powerful poetry, imagery that Habakkuk uses here to talk about the glory and the works of God. And he begins by looking back at God's faithfulness. He says in verse 2, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day and our time. Make them known. Habakkuk addresses God. He's just heard about this impending suffering that's about to come on Judah. And he recalls to mind God's faithfulness. And verses 3 to 15, uh, I look back particularly on God's power, His miracles, His deliverance of the people Israel from slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. We can see this in verses 5 and 6. It says, Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. Habakkuk is recalling the plagues, the miracles that God wrought in the eyes of Pharaoh to redeem his people from Egypt. This is is the stories that Habakkuk is bringing to mind. In verse 6, he says, The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. This could be a reference to when the Israelites met God at Sinai and it said the whole mountain trembled. It was on smoke and fire because of the glory of the Lord. Also in ancient uh, Jewish tradition, when you talk about mountains, when you talk about age-old hills, they're referring to things of permanence, things that will always stand, things that can be relied on, ancient witnesses. But we see here that Habakkuk says, even these in the sight of God will tremble and fall. These images of things that will last forever will be dust when God looks at them. The one who alone is truly permanent Uh, Habakkuk here is moving from memory to just worship of who God is. 
He goes on and on and he uses striking imagery of God as a divine warrior. He says, you uncovered your bow and called for many arrows. In wrath, you strode through the earth and in anger, you threshed the nations. When Israel left Egypt, God went before them into the promised land and drove out nations before them in just miraculous, crazy ways, in ways that could only be explained by the God of heaven moving before them and moving in power. And it's in this face of impending suffering that Habakkuk, at the first, he goes, God, I'm going to remember your deeds. I'm going to remember what you've done. I'm going to look back and I'm just going to call to mind your faithfulness, your power, your glory. And then he says what? He says, repeat them in our day. He says, God, what you have done before, what I know you are capable of doing, do it again. Do it again. I need to see it. We have the Babylonians coming, Lord. There is suffering coming our way. And I recall to mind that when our ancestors were struggling in Egypt, you did it. You came. You rescued them by your powerful and mighty hand. God, I need you to do it again. Do it again, Lord. He looks back at God's faithfulness. Habakkuk also looks up at the character of God. Yes, he looks up and sees the justice, the wrath, the glory, the power, the might. But then he says this, he says, God in wrath, remember mercy. He says, God in your wrath against Babylon, remember mercy. He beseeches the very heart of God. And we can learn much from our Old Testament friends. He assumes wrath. He doesn't contest God for his wrath. He doesn't say, God, you shouldn't be like that. It's a given. What he goes after is, God, in your wrath, I know that's coming, but remember to be merciful. It's like he's saying to God, God, just remember who you are. I know this is the very heart of you. You are a merciful God. Please be that in your dealing with us. And it's something that the prophet Jeremiah does in his own book on grief and sorrow. The prophet Jeremiah was lamenting over the state of Jerusalem. And in a similar way to Habakkuk, he says, he's talking about the suffering of Jerusalem. He says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions, that's another word for mercy, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the face of impending suffering, Habakkuk looks up into the very heart of God and finds rest and finds solace, and finds comfort. Because his God of might and power and righteous wrath against sin is also at his very heart a God who is merciful, who can't help but to be merciful. It's who he is. And he knows that what God has done for Israel in the past, he will do again. He knows that Israel is, is, is God's own child. And he says, God, remember mercy. Remember who you are. We need you to be merciful. And we can see in uh, chapter 3, verse 13, Habakkuk finds this rest in the character of God because he knows what happened before. He says, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. He remembers that in God's wrath against Egypt, he was merciful to his people. And Habakkuk is still saying, God, do it again in your wrath against Babylon. Be merciful to us. He looks back at God's faithfulness. He looks up into the very heart of God, the goodness of God. And then strengthened by his worship, he then looks forward to God's salvation. 
And then he prays some of the most, I think, faith-filled prayers in all of Scripture. He says, Though the fig leaf does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. The poetry and imagery here is just stunning, I think. And when you think that ancient Israel was an agrarian society, they depended on agriculture to make their living, what Habakkuk is describing here is what's going to happen when Babylon invades. There is going to be utter desolation. No figs, no grapes, no olives, no sheep, no cattle. There is just nothing. There is no hope. There is nothing redeeming about this picture. It is an absolute catastrophic future ahead. And Habakkuk says, yet. And I'm thinking, what do you mean, Habakkuk? There's, there's no yet here. There is nothing redeeming about this picture. There's no yet. There's no hope. There will be nothing. You will have nothing. No sheep, no cattle, nothing to eat. It is going to be a disaster. There's no yet here. What could you possibly say yet about? And he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Habakkuk has arrived at this place where stripped of everything else, he truly knows he can never, never be deprived of the love of his God. And that is all that he needs. He looks back at God's faithfulness. He looks up at God's goodness and he looks forward to his salvation. So how on earth does that apply to us here today, 2022? You know, I think we are, could agree we're in a time of tremendous change and discord in our nation and around the world at the moment. Political upheaval, egregious human rights abuses, racism, war, famine, disease, corrupt rulers, economic mismanagement, rising house prices, inflation. And that's not the least to say what goes on within our very minds, within our very souls. The world is in disarray. And I think in these moments, there are a couple of tendencies that we can have. One is to rage against God like Habakkuk did at the start. God, what on earth is going on? Do you even see what is happening in the world at the moment? The other is to try and do everything that we can to control the situation. We buy up insurance for everything we possibly can just in case we make decisions based on fear to try and control our circumstances and think, if I only do this, then I'll be safe. If I have this, then I'll be safe. Or we just throw our hands up in the air and say, I can't do anything about it. I'm powerless. And we live in fear of the future. I think God shows us a different way through Habakkuk. And in the face of current struggles in your life or concerns about what may happen in the future, God invites us to look back at his faithfulness and ask him, do it again. I wonder what that might look like for you as you look at the world. Maybe we could look at Ukraine. We could look at North Korea. We could look at Afghanistan, what's happening in Myanmar, what's happening in Sri Lanka. And we could say, God, as you turn the heart of Nebuchadnezzar back to you, please do the same with corrupt rulers in the world. Do it again, Lord. You did it to Nebuchadnezzar. You can do it again. 
What would that look like for what we want for our nation? God, our nation is godless. It is moving further and further away from you. Father, as you turn the hearts of the Welsh to you in the 1904 Welsh revival where hundreds of thousands came to faith, God, do it again. Let us see it in our day. What about for the church? God, I've read stories about what you've done. I look back at the early church in Acts, 3,000 added to your church in one day. God, do it again. Can we see it in our day? What about for your family? God, I've heard, I've seen you provide finances, homes, healing, uh, restored relationships to families. God, would you do it again for my family? I need to see it in my day. And what about for you as an individual? God, I have heard stories and I have seen you move. I have seen you clothe the poor. I have seen you open barren barren wombs. I have seen you heal depression. I have seen you restore relationship. I have seen you heal and free people from bondage and sin. God, I need to see you do it again. Do it again in my day. Sit in the wonder of who he is and what he has done and what he can do and say, God, do it Again, allow yourself to be drawn up and caught up into worship for who he is, for his awesome deeds and power. Ask him to do it again. And then most importantly, trust the outcome to him. Trust the outcome to him like the three Jewish men did in the face of execution when they were about to be thrown into a furnace. They said, our God can save us. Our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, I will still praise him. Because in Habakkuk chapter 2, he said the righteous will live by faith, not by favourable outcomes. We live by faith, not by favourable outcomes. Because we also look up. Our faith is in the one we look up to. God invites us to look up into his goodness. Habakkuk's worship, I find honestly confronting. His worship is so confronting because he says, God, even if I lose everything, even if my future is completely bleak, I will still praise you and I will rejoice in you. And I think it's confronting because a prayer like that reveals the idols in my own heart. God, don't take that. God, I will still praise you, but don't touch that. Please leave that. I can't live without that. It's hard because in our fallen state, sin has distorted our realities and we are bent in on ourselves so that our natural tendency is to idolize things above God and above Jesus. And we like to come to Jesus because he does things for us. John Piper said that Jesus didn't come to be useful. He came to be precious. He came to be precious. If we come to Jesus because he is useful, We won't be able to stand in times of suffering because the one we came to isn't holding up his end of the bargain. He won't be delivering on what you came to him for. He's not useful. He's precious. Jesus came to give us good things. He came to give us life and life in abundance. But that is only found in savoring and treasuring him for who he is. He longs for that. He longs for that precious place in our hearts and it's in that place that Habakkuk came to that Horatio Spafford came to where you can lose everything and still rejoice because you have him and I think the wonderful thing about this is that loving Jesus more than anything else actually gives proper weight and proper dignity 
in those pe- to the things that we lose in those periods of suffering. It honors them as real and felt and important. Because I think in times of adversity, we can tend to adopting a stoic philosophy. The, the stoic said, you know, in, in, in a, a way to get through periods of suffering and pain is just to value things less. Because if you don't value things, and if you don't value the people around you, when they inevitably get taken them from you, it won't hurt. Just say it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. It's not the gospel. It's not what God would have us believe in periods of suffering. It's so much more than that. And I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. He says, Christians don't face adversity by stoically decreasing our love for the people and things of this world so much as by increasing our love and joy in God. Grief is not meant to be eliminated, but seasoned and buoyed up with love and hope. Last weekend, uh, my wife and I said goodbye to our closest friends. They moved to London for a couple of years and it was painful, really, really painful. And I remember driving to the airport uh, to say goodbye to them. I was in the car by myself there on the shuttle and I'm, you know, I'm weeping, I'm crying my eyes out, but I have worship on at the same time because God had brought me to a place of, in my pain of loss, he enabled me to worship him. He gave me this perspective of God, how wonderful that I have people in my life who it hurts so much to say goodbye to. My grief was seasoned and buoyed up with love and hope. In the midst of my pain, God met me with his love, with his perspective. We look back, we look up, and finally we look ahead. God invites us to look ahead to his salvation. Our hope in the future must be built on the goodness and faithfulness of God. We can see that in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. On that cross, he took the full force of God's righteous fury against my sin and against your sin, and he paid for it all. He took my place and he took your place. And in that spot, he was both righteous in his wrath and he was merciful. We see wrath and mercy meet at the cross God is both just in dealing with sin and the justifier at the same time of all who believe. In that moment when you believe, he removes your guilt and shame and he gives you Jesus' righteousness. That is mercy and that is grace. He died for you. As you look into the future and you await your pending ultimate salvation, you look back at the cross and you see, God love me that much. How will he ever abandon you now in the future of what might come? There is no suffering ahead in your life that God will not meet you there. He didn't abandon you on the cross. He won't abandon you in your pain in the future. And this is what Horatio Spafford drew his strength from when he wrote, though Satan should buffet. The trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Though Satan should buffet and trials should come, though hard times come, this is going to assure, this is going to assure me Christ has been crucified for me and he loves me and he's coming back for me. No one knows what the future holds. I don't know What is ahead? I don't know a single thing that's going to happen in my future, but this I know. God is good, he is faithful, and he is always worthy of our praise 
and worship. And one day he will have the final say against sin and evil. A day of justice is coming. It's at his appointed time. But he will do it. This is the place Habakkuk arrived at. A place of moving from what if to even if. A place that God invites us and longs for us to come to. A place from going, God, what if bad things happen? What if pain is ahead for me? What if the worst situation should come my way? What if that thing that I fear is about to happen? And God would have you say, even if. Even if the worst thing should happen. Even if that period of suffering doesn't end when I think it should. Even if the bad thing happens that I dread. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my saviour, because the sovereign Lord is my strength. Father, we worship you. You are always worthy of our praise. And our praise is not contingent on circumstances because you say the righteous will live by faith, not by favourable outcomes. God, give us a bigger picture of who you are, of how merciful you are, Lord, that we might be able to say, whatever comes our way, I will rejoice in my God. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name.